a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there, and welcome to the show. Yeah, we got a lot to talk about today. And, you know, for some people, it's like dessert. Bad news is like dessert. Okay, Brian, tell me the lowdown. What's the worst thing that's happening in the world today? Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that's not how I tend to lead out. I don't like to start with the words. I don't want to scare you. I don't want to leave you fearful. I don't want to leave you angry. Or for that matter, just frustrated, all the stuff going on. But I'm going to have to say, in fairness to the weird state that the world is in right now, I think we should take just a quick snapshot, a quick assessment of just a few of the things that are going on. Um, Not for the sake of scaring ourselves, but just to kind of be aware that there's a lot going on out there. I mean, there's, there's some intense stuff. And with that in mind, you know, it's, it's good to pay attention, but it's also good to remember where your strength is, where your influence is most needed. Actually, I have a remarkable piece I'm going to share with you in just a few moments from uh, Joaquin Book, precisely on this subject. But before we get there, just I just want to give you kind of a an impression of what I'm seeing as I look across the headlines and just just a quick glance at the world. This is what I've gleaned from social media primarily, so you know you take it with a grain of salt. But uh, some massive demonstrations taking place in Cuba. Now, as far as I know, Cuba is still a dictatorship. I don't know why the U.S. is still, you know, we're going to maintain our embargo and we're going to, you know, make sure that uh, they are cut off in every way possible. I mean, Cuba's been a thorn in America's side for 60 years. So I, I guess until something fundamentally changes in the way people think at the top of our government, it probably will continue to be so. But here's, here's the big thing. They're waving American flags. And I don't know all of the issues, but um, the, the people who are saying, well, uh, they're just rioting and they're demonstrating or protesting in the streets because they haven't been able to receive the vaccination. Uh, come on. <laughs> I mean, there, there are some people who may actually riot for that, but uh, I think it probably falls further down the line behind things like, I don't know, basic human rights, not being under some bureaucrat or dictator's foot every second of every day. Just a hunch. So on the one hand, it's very encouraging. And I'm not telling you, you know, because, uh, you know, the flag represents everything that uh, that America is or should be. It's more from a, a standpoint of it's amazing that they hold up that symbol as a symbol of freedom, of, of, of government being limited to its proper role, which is protecting their human rights. And I only say that because it's it's a nice contrast from the, the current narrative, which is proclaiming to the world that no 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 this flag nothing more than a symbol of racism nothing more than a symbol of man's dominion over others and you know what that that's a part of the history of that flag you know i don't say this to be mean but more slaves lived under the stars and stripes than lived under the stars and bars but that doesn't mean that's all it stands for as anyone who you know, takes even the tiniest effort to study history, we'll understand. There's a lot going on there that 
that isn't being agendized and, and weaponized, you know, and, and exploited. Slavery currently is, but there was good things as well as bad things that happened. That was different people in a different time and a different place. If you and I have any duty attached whatsoever to that, it's simply to learn from what they did, what worked, what didn't. Not make the same mistakes. And trust me, someone will have the same opportunity with us at some point. So we probably should be careful not to be too high and mighty as we you know, are, are looking at other people and with that luxury of hindsight to, to proclaiming how wrong they were. How could they not have known? It's so clear to us. I promise you, like them, we have our blind spots. We will be held to account someday, maybe a long time from now, maybe not that far from now. I don't know. People look back at the Germans from 1933 to 1945 and think, what the the heck happened? You were a, a promising first world nation with all kinds of educated people advancing great things in the world. And then you fell into the Third Reich. You accepted enough of what was going on that that's where you ended up. And, well, we, we, all, we know that was a very unhappy ending for a lot of people. And it set other things in motion that were very unhappy. You know, the whole Iron Curtain, I don't think that uh, that was a great thing for the people living behind there. That was decades. That was generations of misery. All right. I'm starting to, I'm starting to dwell on the negative. Let, let me move on to something else here. The wildfires and the drought. I know, this is positive. No, just an observation, though. There's so much haze, so much smoke over the Intermountain West right now. Um, This is coming in, I believe, from the Northern California fire, which grew by like 200 square miles yesterday. It's it's serious. And the drought here in the West, I mean, I'm not one who keeps track of things. Well, according to my personal records, you know, the weather hasn't been this consistently hot, but I know I've paid very close attention for the last four weeks. Hasn't been a day we haven't pushed 90 or above. And this isn't a part of the country where that's that's pretty hot. Utah is is drying out. I know there's been great concerns over, you know, last week people celebrating uh, 4th of July festivities with, you know, fireworks and so forth. Anyway, pretty intense stuff. And the evidence is everywhere to see and breathe, unfortunately, as you look around you. Okay, this is kind of a a scary thing, but something you ought to be aware of as well. South Africa. There are some legit race riots taking place in South Africa. And, you know, anybody who's been observing has seen this coming for a long time. But it's a very serious situation. And I don't know, there may be some lessons we could learn here if we'd want to, uh, if we would like to avoid you know, having to deal with anything remotely approaching that. All right, let's, I, I'm going to step away now from the, the the downside. And I get it. That's some pretty heavy stuff. And I've, I've just told you about some pretty challenging things going on in the world. This takes into account none of your, you know, individual circumstances, things that are unique, you know, things that uh, you personally or as a family might be going through. But uh, I, I feel pretty safe in saying life is challenging, and it seems like the incline, if you will, has, has increased just slightly. Not complaining. I'm just observing that I don't think very many people would, would argue that, that it's not difficult and, and, and getting tougher. So, so we got some challenges ahead of us. I want to share with you this article from Joaquin Book. 
I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's called The World at Its Darkest. But I love his message. He says, remember who the enemy is. And it is not the friends, neighbors, or family members you're lashing out at. And he has a quote from the Two Towers from Tolkien. And you, ring bearer, she said, turning to Frodo, I come to you last who are not last in my thoughts. For you, I have prepared this. She held up a small crystal phial. It glittered as she moved it, and the rays of white and rays of white light sprang from her hand. In this phial, she said, is caught the light of Arendelle's star, set amid the waters of my fountain. It will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. Now, Joaquin Books says, look, I'm not the only one who's seriously scared about what happens in the world. And not about that pesky virus, which overwhelmingly doesn't harm very much. She says, I'm, I'm in the right age group and healthy, so I face next to no risks. Risks, rather. Instead, he says, the catastrophic risk I face comes from the gullibility of others. Our government's overreach, the laying of intellectual and political groundwork for permanently removing our rights. He says, what we in the West until recently were uh, thought were unalienable rights that nobody in their wildest dreams would impinge on were removed and upended in a matter of months, not to the sound of pitchforks and revolutions, but to the masses cheering them on. He says, in country after country, madness ruled and disproportionate responses took place. And when the enlightened restrictions didn't work, how could they, completely misaligned as they were, the leaders jammed more of them, even more of them down our credulous throats. Not that we minded either. We celebrated their strong actions, even attacked them for not stripping us bare earlier. Then we turned on one another, especially those who dared say, hang on a minute. Now he says, perhaps I'm hyperbolic here. I sure hope so. And perhaps we'll all look back at this as a grand misunderstanding. Better err on the side of caution, right? But he says, even so, there's a new sheriff in town. At the mere whiff of another invisible threat of doom like this one, we know exactly what's about to go down. From the great political and economic historian Robert Higgs, we know that government powers, once expanded, never fully returned to where they were. Over time, jumping from emergency to emergency, we end up with a larger and larger government. Okay, now, I think he's laying this out about as truly as it can be stated. But there's another angle that Joaquin Book shares with us. I will give it to you as soon as we return from this break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to thank my sponsors because they make it possible for me to do what I do which is to shovel truth and light in the direction of anybody who happens to be looking for some. I don't have a corner on the market of truth, but I am doing my best to find and share information that I think is relevant, useful, and, and get this, empowering. In the sense that it doesn't just leave you feeling angry and feeling like, man, I'm so mad at everything and everybody, but that actually gives you a sense of uh, who you are, what you can do. What's within your influence? So sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, Life Saving Food, 
By the way, if you're in the market for food storage, you're putting some of that stimulus to use, lifesavingfood.com. There's a link to it right there in the show notes. Pure-light.com, hslammo.com, and last but not least, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for July 12th. And you'll find links to the sponsors just down there at the bottom of today's show notes. So I'm sharing this article with you from Joaquin Book about the world at its darkest. And I know that there are a lot of people, probably most of us, if we want to be honest, that are feeling that sense of, (laughs) there's a lot going on here and uh, not a lot of it's good. In other words, it, it just feels like there are a lot of things that are wobbling right on the edge of spinning out of control. And of course... As people cling to, well, somebody do something about it, government always seems to get summoned first. And so Joaquin Book points out how over time, as we jump from emergency to emergency, despite voices warning us, don't do that, don't let government do that, or they will take advantage, or they'll establish precedent, and it will be their purview forever. And that's how you end up with a larger and larger government. So he asks, so what to do about this? Joaquin Book writes, most of us aren't in positions to make meaningful differences one way or another. So we're left to merely tread water. Endure. That powerlessness that we all feel, the inability to make plans or meet friends or attend weddings or celebrate anything, is getting to millions and millions of people. And he says, nobody else cares about your pain and nobody else is in charge of improving it. Now, this is just some straight... Truth, okay? This is how a friend would speak to you. He does say a few things remain for those who still cherish our own agency. And that includes things like making preparations to weather the storm. And he says, I mean this in every sense. Financially, personally, professionally, health-wise. Hold larger buffers in your economy as a household and as a saver and investor. Keep more food in the fridge. More long-lasting goods in the pantry. More easy to access funds in cash and in your bank accounts. Prepare financially and monetarily for the life after the madness by keeping physical gold and Bitcoin. If not now, then when? And professionally, he says, by getting skills you need and want. Work on yourself and your own skills. Everything can be learned on YouTube these days. With that extra time that all of us have, learn about what you need to learn about. Skills that are valuable in this economy or survival skills that an even darker future would require. He says, in terms of your own health and well-being, work out much more than you'd want to. And he says, believe me, right now, nobody wants to. Every session, the line that runs through my mind is, what is the bloody point? When all else goes dark, he says, we need to bring the light from within ourselves. Breathe push-ups, runs, lifts, yoga. Do them and do more of them. I love this part. Shut off the TV and avoid news. Something you should have done a long, long ago anyway. And he says, strip most all of your social media too. Nothing could make you less informed about the world than the never-ending noise from a news anchor. If you can't live without the quick fix from news events, at least consider more slow-moving formats, serious podcasts. Magazines like The Economist or books. He says, read widely about people who lived through truly horrendous things. Anne Frank, Stefan Zwig, Zlata Filipic, 
Filipovich, rather, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And remember that what we have is at least so far miles and miles away from what they had. Now, he says some other practical advice is defensive. I still love this, though. Cheat when nobody sees. Trade whatever you can on the black market, reciprocating favors from your neighbors. If you live in the countryside, he says, try getting game or roadkill from those around you who know how to acquire them. Stack away Bitcoin out of reach of your tyrannical government. Get a cottage in the woods or the Alps or the emptiness of whatever nature you most like. The upside of this terrible pandemic, he says, is the realization among some of us, at least, that you can't entrust your protection and well-being on big government. You are in charge of your own life, wield its agency, and must secure it for yourself and others physically, financially, and mentally. Solzhenitsyn, reflecting on the deepest horrors that anyone ever unleashed on humanity, wrote, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us, it oscillates with the years, and even with hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. End quote. So Joaquin Book says, remember who the enemy is. It's not your neighbor who flouted the rules or that colleague who got infected. It's the government rules and the agents who enforce them. And even though they're mostly regular human beings going through very similar challenges to the ones you are, their hearts are not consumed by evil, even if one wonders about some of them. He says the world is a seriously scary place. And yet we must carry on. So take responsibility for your life. Learn what you need. Detach from what you don't. Delve deep and find that Arendelle-like light in your own soul. The light that keeps you going. The stuff that matters. I have seen and read a lot of really good information over the past year and a half. But I think this may be some of the best advice that I've come across. It's good enough that I wanted to share it with you. What you do with it is up to you. But that part, this line here about learn what you need, detach from what you don't. That's hard. And I say that as someone who's kind of an information junkie because I want to know what's going on. You know, it's it's almost, you know, I'll admit it. It's, it's almost a matter of pride, you know. When someone asks me, Brian, have you heard about this? I much prefer to be able to tell them yes and have a cogent take on it than to be going no. But more and more, I find myself going, I don't know anything about that. And more and more, I'm okay with it because I'm trying to focus on the places and things that are close enough to me that I can actually do something about it. By the way, the the advice he gives about how you would weather a storm, you know, again, I don't share these things with you to try to make you afraid. I'm sharing them with the hope that, that you'll consider it, at least weigh out, is this a possibility? Would I be better off if I were to, I don't know, fortify my position, have some money set aside? Have, you know, a way of growing more of my own food or putting aside a good storage of food. How would I purify my water? This is stuff that we need to have sussed out before we find ourselves in some, you know, serious crisis that, uh, you know, has us focusing more on, you know, survival than on, you know, some of the finer things. Times are pretty good right now in spite of all the challenges. I hope it doesn't sound too pessimistic to to point out what's going on. I think we've seen this coming for a long time. I know there have been plenty of voices that have warned, hey, 
You know, you can't do, for instance, economically or uh, fiscally and, and monetarily what uh, what our government has done. Borrowing and spending trillions upon trillions of dollars. I mean, it's at some point, all that money's got to end, or at least somebody's got to answer for. Where do we get the value that is represented by this money, seeing as most of it exists in the form of electrons or, you know, maybe uh, maybe in paper? I don't know. There's some there's some interesting times. I look at this as kind of an optimist in the sense that you and I are being given an opportunity to find out what kind of people we are. And I think we are better people than we ever gave ourselves credit for. We'll understand that when we strip away some of the, uh, you know, worldly things. But I think our best moments are ahead of us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I just want to mention, for the sake of anyone who is uh, moving to the Intermountain area, there's a huge exodus. Anybody who has uh, looked to purchase a home, actually anybody who's even looked to rent a home lately uh, can attest to that the competition is very fierce. A lot of people looking for a place to rest their weary heads. If you are moving to Utah, I want you to take note that uh, that my friends at uh, uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage are the ones you need to be talking to. Because if you are looking for the, the dream home of your choice, you know, if you find one and you're like, yeah, this is it, I'm going to get it. There's a lot of other people that already are lined up on it as well. And I don't say that to discourage you. I'm just telling you that you got to have your financing in order and ready to go like right then. So reach out to Patriot Home Mortgage. Again, you want the Heather Turner team, NMLS ID 715386. They are an equal housing opportunity lender, and they're located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, or you can call 435-703-4522. There's also a link in the show notes, which will take you to Heather. And uh, again, congratulations on the move. Now good luck in finding that home. So elsewhere, let's see, there were a couple other things that, oh, I'm just going to mention this one quickly. I won't spend a lot of time on it. I have in the show notes today an article from Brett Cooper with a very informative take on the ATF's latest attempt to turn millions of peaceful firearms owners into felons overnight. And it has to do with uh, the the regulation of a piece called the stabilizing brace. I don't want to get into all the particulars, but the bottom line is if you put a regular gun stock on an AR-15 instead of this stabilizing brace, it magically transforms to a short-barreled rifle, which is subject to the National Firearms Act of 34, and, excuse me, a $200 tax stamp, and essentially you have to have government permission to own something like that. I don't know. It's, It's an arbitrary use of bureaucracy. To turn people who are currently law-abiding citizens, harming no one, using their lawfully owned, honestly acquired property, but it will turn them into potential criminals overnight. And this is the, this is the same with most every gun control law that there is. And that is it, it changes people who are perfectly peaceful into what government considers criminals, whom it can then justify using force against, 
without them having ever done anything wrong. Yeah, it just doesn't seem right. It just seems... And it's done without due process. I mean, you want to show me that, well, this person has behaved in such a way that, you know, they're, they're a threat. Yeah. By all means, you show me, you prove to me, convict them in a court of law. I mean, I may, if I'm on the jury, I may still weigh it out pretty carefully, but that's a whole different thing than just, nope, preemptively, we're going to assume that anybody who has one of these stabilizing braces, you know, is, uh, and doesn't register with the government is a dangerous individual. Sorry, that's, that's just compliance. Okay, here's another one, and this uh, this one, I know this is a problem for some people. Um, if you don't have to deal with chronic pain, you probably can't appreciate what those who do deal with chronic pain are going through. And I'm saying this, by the way, as someone who does not deal with chronic pain. Knock on wood. I've been very, very fortunate. But that's, uh, you know, of all of my many challenges in life, that is not something I've had to, to deal with. It's brutal. It's so hard for people. And yet when you get to, you know, again, federal agencies involved, you know, the war on drugs, people who are legitimately facing chronic pain, trying to manage it, trying to live as normal life as they can get lumped in with, you know, the common junkie out there on the street corner. And it's because the, the government inserts itself into the doctor patient relationship. This is an article on truthout.org. Mike Ludwig is the author. And it's a pretty lengthy article, but the bottom line is he tells the story of how an undercover cop tried to shut down a doctor in Indiana, and soon two patients were dead. And it's because, you know, in the effort to control this substance, and this goes into great detail, the different different DEA-regulated substances here, and trying to control this and make sure that, you know, nobody was being prescribed too much or that nobody was enjoying, you know, what they were using— that uh, that was that was what inadvertently led to the death of these patients who still dealing with pain turned instead to street drugs and you know it's not a big challenge for people who want to find it to find things like you know heroin fentanyl things like that the thing that comes to mind for me and this is the part that I struggle with is by what authority do we allow government to interject itself into that doctor-patient relationship? Now, look, I understand. There have been doctors who were, you know, prescription mills. They were they were writing prescriptions for pain pills and then turning around and reselling those pain pills. And, you know, that's fraudulent. And that's against the law. But I, I am not a fan of the way that, uh, that particularly the federal government has stepped in and said, you know what? We'll take care of this, and here's how we're going to do it. We're just going to clamp down on everybody. We're going to scrutinize every single prescription that these guys write and make it very hard for the doctor to actually make decisions for their patient. This is It's central planning. Okay, I'm not uh, railing against one political party or another. It's, it's the statism notion that, uh, well, with, with enough uh, state intervention, why we can solve any problem in the world. But oftentimes it makes things worse. And that's what we're starting to see here. So I have this article, which will be linked in the show notes. It's again, it's it's lengthy, but I'm, I'm sharing this with you because I trust that you are probably the kind of person you don't need just a little superficial Reader's Digest snippet. Oh, OK. One paragraph or less. Tell me what happened. If this is an issue that uh, you want to look into in some depth, this is a great article to do it. It's it's well written. It's well sourced. And 
it just raises some questions that maybe we should be asking before we, you know, willingly hand over even more of that uh, autonomy to some bureaucrat to make those kind of decisions for us. I think I I go back here for a minute to uh, Joaquin Book's article that I shared in the first two segments of, of today's show. And there's a there's a, a term that I wish more people were familiar with, and it's it's agorism. And it sounds like a fancy term. Wow, look at you using these big words here. But in in essence, what agorism is is a person re- reducing their governmental footprint. Let me put it another way: you stop asking permission for everything that you are doing. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, you know you. You know, become an eyesore to your neighbors and you do things that pollute their water and poison their animals and harm their kids. Not at all. It's just simply you recognize that you don't need government permission to cut your kid's hair or your nephew's hair or your uncle or whomever. If you have the skills to cut hair, cut hair. Don't go, you know, spend 22 hours or 2200 hours rather getting a, a cosmetology license and learning how to be a licensed hair cutter. Now, I understand this for some people, this is like, whoa, Brian, hey, you're going off the rails here. All I'm suggesting is that uh, licensure and and the requirements, you have to jump through this bureaucratic hoop or that bureaucratic hoop. It's gone far beyond any place where it really could have done good. And now it's used as a way to, to pretty much regulate and control all economic activity, the better to tax it with. And I mean, you know, I guess, you know, they see it as their money. Agorism simply says, nah, thanks, but uh, whatever it is you're selling there, I don't need. Now, the political class does not like to be refused. You know, what they are offering us in their, in their mind is, you know, it's, it's a, a wonderful blessing. A closer association with them in everything that we do. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you there are politicians, particularly those running for re-election. They'll pass whatever, you know... Whatever piece of legislation, whatever bill, they'll spend money like it's going out of style. And when they come back to visit in their district, you know, to get your vote and you're going to support me, right? They're they're always just full of that entitlement. I'm sure you'll want to shake my hand after all. Look at everything I've done for you. So rather than, you know, getting googly eyed and wanting to shake their hand and thank them or for that matter, trying to persuade them, hey, could we change this? What if instead you just simply go your own way? You know, you don't want to pay taxes, you know, sales taxes on items. I know this, again, this is going to sound very subversive, but you can always look around at yard sales, Craigslist, buy things secondhand, and you avoid sales tax. Now, I know there are some states that insist, well, you should still report it, right? I mean, you had happiness in your life, and we want uh, we want our cut. <laughs> All right. But again, it's it's a great position to be in. If you can tell them with a straight face and with love in your heart, no thanks. I don't need what you're offering. So you can do that with a squeegee man, right? You can drive away from the squeegee man and all he can do is get frustrated. But you try to redu- you try to refuse doing business with government when it's the one squeegeeing your window unwanted? Yeah, it's uh he wants to force you to reduce that governmental footprint.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, I'm hoping to end on a high note here, but I found a very interesting article today on uh, how good intentions don't always bring good results. And I thought this was uh, this was worth sharing. This is an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. Savannah Ellickson has written it. And it's an article about why so many homeless people have smartphones and how they're making social isolation worse. Subtitle here, the government's lifeline program is a sobering reminder that good intentions don't always yield good results. Now, Savannah Ellickson says there's been no short of no shortage rather of hand wringing in the last 15 months as our nation grappled with COVID-19 and its ripple effects many of which are not medical. The threat of a collapsed economy, government overreach, increased seclusion among with, along with its affiliated detriments have been concerns. But she says that the epicenter of this worry has been the most vulnerable among us, including low-income Americans. Regarding increased seclusion, how might we mitigate the harms of isolation for those already more vulnerable? And she says many have advocated for increased access to technology via government-subsidized lifeline cell phones as an innovative way for the poor to remain connected. But here's the burning question. Is the antidote to isolation that simple? She says, I'm reminded of a recent experience I had volunteering at a local homeless shelter. And she says, to be friendly, I struck up a conversation with one of the residents who shared with me unfounded confidence in the stability of his current romantic relationship. I challenged him a bit. How do you know your relationship is as healthy as you think? Immediately, his eyes glazed over and wordlessly, he pulled out his phone and began scrolling absentmindedly. He ignored my presence and left my my question hanging in the air unanswered. It made him uncomfortable, so he dodged it and his smartphone made it easy. Now, how could this man, jobless and staying at a homeless shelter, afford a smartphone? He and other shelter residents have, can have smartphones courtesy of a government program called Lifeline. Now, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, implemented the Lifeline program back in 1984 to help low-income households with what was deemed an essential service, phone access. It originally covered a small portion of low-income residents' landline phone bills, but over time, the program ballooned with many benefits for an ever-increasing number of people. Now, with many low, many low-income people qualify for free smartphones with free or very cheap service plans, complete with unlimited talk and text and free data. The government imposes a tax on phone companies to pay for the program, and the phone companies then pass the expense on to their customers via the Universal Service Fund, an additional charge on every conventional customer's phone bill. So if you haven't taken a good close look at your phone bill, now you'll start to understand, man, what are all these different charges? Well, there's one of them right there, Universal Service Fund. Back to our article. Savannah Alexson says uh, that that night she spoke with two other residents who were interested in joining the Forge, which is the shelter's long-term men's program. And she says, I encouraged their interest. What could be better for these men 
than a program promoting work, virtue, and self-sufficiency. But both expressed trepidation. So she pressed them on that. Why choose the path of chronic homelessness over the path out of poverty? Both men cited the same reason. I couldn't give up my cell phone. Participants in the FORGE program are asked to give up their phone for six months to enable a distraction-free environment. Now, that evening at the shelter, she said, I kept thinking, unintended consequences. On the surface, Lifeline seems to be a good, even necessary program. What could be wrong with providing low-income citizens with means to call about job opportunities, schedule doctor appointments, stay connected to family? But the insidious problem lies in the risk of overuse and its concomitant issues. Phone addiction is not limited to the poor. In fact, a 2015 study in the Journal of Behavioral Addictions discovered a significant correlation between the extent of smartphone use and depression among adult students. However, the negative effects appear to accrue disproportionately to those at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. Other studies link heavy phone usage with anxiety, depression, and social, social isolation, maladies which are already disproportionately affecting the poor and are on the rise, among, on the rise rather, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Robert Putnam, in his groundbreaking book, Bowling Alone, indicates that social isolation is especially harmful to the economically disadvantaged. Conversely, strong social connections, particularly outside an impoverished person's socioeconomic tier, are invaluable in their potential to leverage him or her out of poverty. Indeed, she says the poor have the most acute need for the benefits afforded by the variety of real social connections, including better work opportunities, a sense of community and belonging, and an improved outlook on life. And significant evidence shows smartphones inhibit our ability to make these vital connections. Is it wise to provide a device that's strongly linked with social isolation and depression as a combatant against social isolation and depression, especially during such a tumultuous time when such issues are already exacerbated? Is it even logical? Savannah Alexson says the Lifeline program is a sobering reminder of what seasoned poverty fighters know well. Good intentions don't always yield good results. Knowing what will really help is a job that can only be accomplished by local, knowledgeable, compassionate charity. And as we consider the role government should play in mitigating the insidious effects of a global pandemic, she says, remember that blanket solutions may create more problems than they solve. Amen. That which is intended to alleviate isolation and its attendant depression may indeed be fostering it. I'll have a link to this article in today's show notes, which you can find at the com. I'm thinking back, it was just a couple of years ago, um, a, a good friend, and, and when I say a good friend, I mean the kind like when I see things from them on social media, I almost always come away from reading what they share, feeling like a better person, or at least feeling like I know how to become a better person, because I'm still a work in progress. But it had to do with how we treat the homeless. And I have to paraphrase, and I'm going from memory, so you'll have to forgive me if I leave out some of the relevant stuff here. But what this friend had talked about, and this was after having many, many interactions with homeless people um, in and around Salt Lake City and, and also around Provo, was that more than your money and more than, uh, you know, whatever food you might want to give them, what homeless people really need, what they're really lacking in their life 
is a sense of human connection, a, a feeling of friendship, a feeling of being accepted without condition. I know that seems kind of lofty for some folks. It's like, well, so it's all feel good, kumbaya, huh? We'll just join arms and dance in the streets. I don't know if it's quite that simple, but the point is, how would you go about living your life? And I'm just, I'm, this, is, this is the hard thing to do. Can you put the shoe on the other foot? Can you put yourself in their shoes? How would it be to live your day knowing that anywhere you went, people are going to react one of two ways. They're either going to go immediately blind you become invisible because nobody wants to see, you know, what, uh, what you're going through, wants to acknowledge, you know, your struggle. Or they're going to become hostile and invite you to leave right away because, you know, you're driving off the clientele or you're reflecting badly on, you know, this establishment. I mean, I'd, I've not been in that situation, but I can't imagine that that would be an easy situation to to bear i think i think that would leave you feeling you know worthless completely isolated and when i talk about you know showing them friendship i i don't necessarily mean you know you need to invite them home and make your home fully available to them and you know i'm not talking about you need to go hang out with them you know they're under the overpass or on the you know off-ramp every day just treat them like a human being and there's there's a way to do this and, and I'll tip my hat to my friend Shiloh Logan for, um, for introducing me to this idea. It's the, the $20 challenge. You know, when, when a homeless person asks you, do you have any change? <clears throat> you know, can you spare any change? You know, most of us wouldn't think twice about handing them a couple bucks, five bucks. Yeah, no problem whatsoever. But to dig down and pull a $20 bill out of your pocket, most of us would feel that $20 bill when we give it away. We would be like, ooh, that. That represents a sacrifice. 20 bucks is, you know, good down payment on a tank of gas. That's, that's a fair amount of money. But what happens is when the person who receives it sees what you are willing to give them. I know Shiloh has mentioned, he says, the most common reaction is they will start to cry. Because nobody has shown them that kind of consideration. I don't know. Are you hardcore enough? Could you do it? Could you handle someone actually, you know, feeling appreciated as a human being because of your efforts? Might be a fun thing to try to find out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.